Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, we find out what's behind the aggressive behavior of China's Air Force of late towards Canadian and Australian military aircraft in the East and South China Seas. We look ahead to what could be one of the most significant U.S. Supreme Court decisions on gun control in more than a decade. We speak to the chief medical officer at the BC Coroner Service about its report released today into how deadly last summer's heat wave in the province was. And we learn more about how all provinces need to be more aware of the risk and better prepared for potentially deadly weather events. But first, the coroner's inquest is underway west of Ottawa into the murder of three women in Renfrew County in 2015 by the same man in one of the deadliest acts of domestic violence in Canadian history. We find out why violence against women in rural and remote areas and what can be done about it is at the heart of the inquiry. Tonight, we're going to look into intimate partner violence in rural communities. It's a topic we don't often address. It has always been a problem, one we don't often talk about, perhaps not enough. It is now the focus of a coroner's inquest in Renfrew County. That's in the Ottawa Valley, west of the nation's capital. It's a beautiful, quiet area. Um, This inquest is looking into the death of three women killed on the same day by the same man. Basil Barutsky had a known history of violence against women. On September 22nd, 2015, he killed Natalie Warmerdam, Anastasia Kuzik, and Carol Coulton in less than an hour. Uh, Warmerdam and Kuzik were former girlfriends. Carol Coulton was someone he knew. Uh, It is one of the worst acts of domestic violence in this country's history. Now, in 2017, he was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder. In handing down the sentence, a judge called Barutsky a violent, vindictive abuser of women. Here is Valley, Valerie Warmerdam, the daughter of one of the victims, speaking to reporters following that sentencing in December 2017. I considered him family. He's the only person who I've ever called stepdad. And I, every, every little mannerism that is his, when I see it in somebody else, whether it's a, a phrase or a, just a way he stood... I, I immediately have to remind myself that just because somebody says that little saying doesn't mean that they're him, doesn't mean that they're like him. That's Valerie Warmerdam, daughter of Natalie Warmerdam, one of the three women killed by Basil Barutsky on September 22nd, 2015. Well, joining me now is Kirsten Mercer. She's a lawyer with Goldblatt Partners, who is representing a coalition of frontline agencies in Renfrew County that serve women living with gender-based violence. Uh, Kirsten, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for uh, spending some time to talk about this important case. Yeah, it really is something that we don't talk about a lot, which is which is gender-based violence in, in rural communities. And this inquiry really is going to try to look into that. But just a bit more about the case for listeners who may not be entirely familiar with it. There were a lot of warnings about this about this man. Were there not? Were there not at the time? Yeah, there there were, and. Uh, the, the story of this perpetrator, uh, whose name I choose not to use, because um, I want to focus our um, attention on um, the women who he killed and not him. But the, but we do need to talk about him a little bit. And obviously, the story of his violence goes back many decades. Uh, in, in my work... Um, preparing for the inquest that is unfolding here in Renfrew County, uh, I had the opportunity to look a little bit into the criminal history that goes back many, many decades. And um, this perpetrator was originally charged, as far as we know, with the first count of um, what was then called uh, domestic abuse um, against a girlfriend when he was 20 years old. Uh, I believe it was in 1977. So um, obviously... Uh, and that wasn't a one-off incident. There were many incidents throughout the years, um, throughout a long marriage, uh, and many relationships with other women. So you're right. Uh, there, there were warning signs. There was violence. There were charges that were uh, laid and prosecuted. There were other charges that were withdrawn for various reasons. And when uh, this perpetrator was sentenced to jail for the last time and then released, he was assessed at the highest possible level of risk um, for a perpetrator or an offender who's being released on probation. So it is absolutely the case that we we knew that this individual was a problem um, and uh, he was being released into the community, um, something of a ticking time bomb. Kristen, I've often heard in this case uh, that the system failed these three women. Is that a fair assessment? Completely failed them. 
Well, you know, that's the purpose of the inquest is to sort of ask that question. And so I don't want to jump to the punchline. Uh, I'm not ready to state the conclusion. But what I can say in the work leading up to the inquest, and obviously I've been privy to some of the documents and information, um, and I can tell you that my clients know firsthand that um, the system... Well, ultimately, the system didn't protect these three women. So that's one form of of failure. Um, But also there were some gaps and some things that didn't happen that should have happened and some things that that did happen that shouldn't have. So um, that's the purpose of of the process that's unfolding, though, is to do that work and to ask those questions. And I think the answer is going to be um, some things went right. Uh, but some things didn't, and we need to look carefully at those at those gaps and those challenges. We need to close the gaps, um, and we need to commit ourselves to never uh, never seeing a repeat of an event like this. Yeah, I, I guess this is stepping back a bit, but but just the purpose of the in- inquiry, because in these situations, we don't always have an inquest, but certainly in this case, it was felt that it was absolutely necessary to dig into this beyond the criminal trial. Uh, what was the point of the inquest and, and what is really the purpose? What are we hoping to learn here? That's such a good question, because I think a lot of people don't understand what an inquest is. Certainly, uh, you know, as I go about uh, day-to-day life here in Renfrew County um, and, and speak with people, including my clients uh, and the women that they serve, people don't know what an inquest is. So it's worth taking a minute just to explain that it's a process where the coroner, um, there, there are sort of two things that, that, that an inquest does. One is it a- answers a set of five questions, the, the sort of the who, what, when, where, how kinds of questions um, about a murder. In this case, those questions are fairly easily answered and uh, because there was a criminal trial and those facts aren't really in dispute. But the other phase uh, of an inquest is looking at recommendations aimed at prevention. And um, that is a much more complex task in the context of intimate partner violence and certainly looking specifically at intimate partner violence in a remote and rural community. And that's why this inquest was called. In many provinces, there are mandatory inquests in some areas. So the death of someone in custody, for example, uh, prompts a mandatory inquest. And then there are discretionary inquests. And that's one where the coroner's office or the, the chief coroner for Ontario in this case makes the choice to say, we're going to look more deeply in this case, not because we have to, but because we choose to. And it's a huge undertaking. So it really is an important process. And we as a society uh, dedicate quite a lot of resources to doing this work. What have we learned? I mean, it started yesterday. What have we learned so far? Is there is there anything to talk about in terms of what we've learned at the inquest up to now? Yeah, so we have two days uh, behind us. And, and day one was, I would say, most focused on <clears throat> grounding the work of the inquest in Um, who these women were. And so we heard from family members of two of the women who were able to so bravely come and testify. Um, And uh, we, in fact, we heard from Valerie uh, again, um, who uh, has been an incredibly important presence throughout the planning process. And she she actually sits with the lawyers and uh, has party standing uh, at the inquest and has been participating throughout um, the lead up to the inquest. So she testified on the first day, as did um, Anastasia Kuzik's sister, Zuzu. Um, and what they did, among other things, was shed a light on who these women were. Um, it's so easy to get lost in the details of the worst day of, of all of their lives. Um, but it's really important that we remember and that we take the time to honor who they were. And so we started the inquest that way. We also heard from a, a retired OPP officer who talked uh, talked through some of the some of those five questions that I described at the outset, the sort of who, what, when, where, how. And then today we spent the day um, listening carefully to four incredible experts who testified um, about violence against women or gender-based violence as a as a social issue, um, about the. Um, shelter system in Ontario, about recommendations that have been made in past inquests. And then we had um, one of the representatives from my client who, who does frontline service work at an organization called Victim Services of Renfrew County to talk about what the issue looks like and the response looks like here in the community. 
I'm speaking with Kirsten Mercer. She's a lawyer with Goldblatt Partners who is representing a coalition of frontline agencies in Renfrew County, that's west of Ottawa, uh, serving women living with gender-based violence. So we're talking about an inquest into the deaths of three women in 2015 uh, and, and, and just what this inquest is hoping to learn to try to prevent it from happening again. After this, we'll talk a bit more about how the issue of, of violence against women, of gender-based violence in rural and remote communities is something that is important to deal with and certainly this case exposed why it is so important to, uh, to look into this more deeply and to come up with recommendations uh, that will work. That's after this. Lawyer Kirsten Mercer is our guest this half hour. We're talking about a coroner's inquest underway in Renfrew County in the Ottawa Valley, west of the nation's capital, into the murder of three women in 2015, killed on the same day by the same man in one of Canada's uh, most deadly acts of domestic violence. Uh, Kirsten, I guess for listeners across the country, there are some real public policy issues at hand here that will also be looked at in terms of how to protect, better protect women right across the things that all parts of the country can learn from with what's unfolding in Renfrew County right now. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, there are, I expect there will be many recommendations that come out of this inquest process, but there are a few areas that maybe I can point to. And obviously there's still many witnesses to hear, but um, you know, one of the things we know from many decades of work in this area is that there are um, important insightful recommendations that have yet to be implemented and uh, there's also things to learn from the people on the front lines in this community, including my clients. And so I can tell you a bit about some of those. Um, Sir, yes, certainly. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, first off, I think we have to do a better job of protecting and supporting women um, where they are and accessing the systems that they choose to access. You know, we spend a, a huge amount of money as a society um, operating a criminal justice system and you know, in many communities, domestic violence calls are among, um, are, are represent a big chunk of that. But the reality is most women don't access the criminal justice system when they're experiencing intimate partner violence. Instead, uh, they turn to other kinds of support networks, including community agencies like my clients um, and their own families and friends. And we don't do a very good job of allocating resources to the places where women turn when they most need help. So that's one area. The second area is to treat intimate partner violence perpetrators like the absolute lethal danger that they are. Now, that's not to say that every single person who's charged with an intimate partner violence type of offense uh, will necessarily escalate um, to murder. And obviously, uh, for those people who do this work every day on the front lines, including those people who work with perpetrators, um, we know that, that we can make interventions that can change the course um, uh, of a tragedy like this one if those interventions are made effectively and early. But in a case like the one with this perpetrator, um, as we talked about, decades and decades of violence and, and many other confounding risk factors, um, I think I used the expression earlier that it felt like he was a ticking time bomb in the community. And yet... Um, I think one of those gaps that we'll be hearing about over the course of the inquest is the way that he was handled when he was released back into the community on probation. Um, we know a lot about what danger looks like in these contexts, and I don't think we always respond appropriately, given how dangerous these individuals can be. And then the last area that I want to highlight is a bit of a shift from responding to intimate partner violence occurrences when they happen to preventing them. You know, we, we know a lot about um, uh, what we need to do in terms of changing some of the norms and values that exist. And those norms and values exist throughout our society, both in urban and rural contexts. But there does appear to be some distinct values and norms that exist within rural communities. And, you know, this is not for me to say as, as, a lawyer from Toronto, but this is what I'm hearing from my clients who live and work in these communities every day. You know, we know that the police report that the incidence of intimate partner violence is 75% higher in rural areas. Um, we know that households where there are firearms are much more likely to see lethality associated with intimate partner violence. And we know that rural communities are much more likely to have households with firearms in them. We know that some of the factors that create risk and that 
perpetuate the possibility for intimate partner violence, um, exist in rural contexts where people are isolated, where transportation, public transportation is hard to come by or non-existent, and where people are very far away from their neighbors. And we know that housing and shelter systems are woefully inadequate in these contexts. And so we need to shift our understanding um, of those norms and values that allow this kind of violence to be perpetrated. It's not new. It's been around for centuries. Um, but we need, to, we need to find ways to um, address this abuse and to empower people around those who are living with abuse, not to look the other way, not to minimize, but to understand that this kind of violence, even that violence behind the doors of a in a private home, is incredibly dangerous for the people who live in that home, as well as for the community at large. Kristen Mercer, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate you bringing us up to date on this important work, this important inquiry. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for spending this time to talk about the work that, uh, that we're doing here. Let's head overseas now. Tensions are increasing again these days in the South China Sea after a series of incidents that you may have seen or read about recently that both Canada and Australia say involve Chinese military aircraft taking part in risky maneuvers targeting uh, their military planes. Last week, the Canadian military accused China uh, Chinese planes of not following international safety norms on several occasions, putting a Canadian crew at risk. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday called out China's actions towards Canadian planes, taking part in a UN mission that involves keeping an eye on North Korea. China's actions are irresponsible and provocative in this case, and we will continue to register strongly that they are uh, putting uh, people at risk uh, while at the same time not respecting decisions by the UN to enforce UN uh, sanctions on North Korea. China, in the meantime, has come out saying it's defending uh, defending its military pilots, saying they acted properly and were just protecting its sovereignty. So what is going on? Why has this suddenly bubbled up? Joining me now is Gordon Holden. He's a director emeritus of the China Institute, a professor of political science and adjunct professor at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thanks for your time. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Ben. So, I mean, the obvious question, why now? I mean, the South China Sea is always a hot zone, uh, but what is suddenly going on? Well, I think that there's, it's not brand new. I mean, we go back to 2001, the uh, Chinese PLA Air Force um, damaged an American surveillance aircraft, forcing it to land in Hainan. The, the uh, Chinese plane ditched in the water, the pilot was killed. This is an intensification, perhaps, of something that's going on for a long time. The central problem, to my mind, is that the Chinese have a, a very different view of what is legitimate uh, international waters, international airspace. They are hypersensitive about anything that approaches their shores or their airspace. And even when you had a Canadian plane that was actually enforcing um, Security Council-approved sanctions against North Korea, the Chinese did not hesitate to harass that plane, which is a dangerous set of maneuvers. I've heard this, some describe this, I think the opposition uh, in Ottawa today described this or yesterday described this as sort of the act of the undisciplined. Uh, do, do you buy that? Is this undisciplined or are these pilots carrying out uh, specific orders to go out and harass uh, the planes of other nations that they feel may or may not be uh, intruding on their what they see as their sovereign territory? I actually think that both things could be true. Uh, I think that the PLA, which is a powerful force, it's not much more powerful than their foreign ministry. It's a, not quite a law unto itself. It takes orders from the top, from the party, but it's a powerful political institution. I do believe that they have, they, that is the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, a very conservative, small-c conservative view of Chinese rights, and, and they, particularly as it approaches their shores. On the other hand, you get these, very young fighter pilots of any country. They tend to be hot dogs in a sense. They are um, quick reaction, and they may go beyond the strict limits of their orders. Uh, the maneuvers they engage in could be dangerous, both themselves and the aircraft that they're harassing. So I think they could be both 
uh, somewhat indisciplined, but also following a general order from the top. It strikes me as an incredibly dangerous tactic, though, because if something were to go wrong, and for instance, there were there were some kind of incident involving a Canadian plane on a UN-sanctioned mission, uh, the, the backlash, or at least the repercussions of that, w- would be hard to imagine. It would be serious, obviously. I, that's a, I must admit, I, I tend to agree, but I'm not sure this makes a tremendous amount of sense for China. Uh, China itself, back in 2017, was part of the UN Security Council, of course, the UN Security Council permanent member, and they agreed and voted for um, Resolution 2371, which set up the the enforcement regime for trying to prevent North Korea from um, acquiring a mass, weapons of mass destruction, where they already obviously have, but from developing that capacity. So they themselves are on the record voting in favor. But things have shifted a bit since 2017, you have a, a more powerful China, China which has a thinner skin when it comes to um, their own area, their own territory, and they are. Um, but but I think you're right. The, the equation: if they force down uh, uh, aircraft, Canadian or not, enforcing UN sanctions, I think the repercussions would not would exceed any of the benefit they have from patrolling with such studiousness their own approaches their territory. And their own view of international law is is somewhat at variance with that of the international community generally. Certainly when it comes to their near abroad, so to speak, or at least their shores, they tend to be, uh, tend to have sort of take the law into their, interpret the law the way they see fit. Uh, for listeners who may not know about this larger battle, the South, the battle over what exactly is China's sovereignty over the South China Sea is both a very loaded and very important um, fight that's been going on for quite some time now. Absolutely. Of course, the two separate areas here we're having question, the Australian aircraft in the South China Sea, which is uh, international law applies, the law of the sea applies, which China subscribes to, as does Canada, and as does Australia. And uh, But China has built their own um, islands out of reefs and shoals. They have fortified and militarized the islands they control, and they tend to treat these areas as as if they had status under international law as if there's no dispute about who they belong to. But the law of the sea is a very different approach, uh, which is distinct from the Chinese. But up in the in the East China Sea, near North Korea, where Canadian planes have been operating, they have similar sensitivities about islands they dispute with Japan, uh, with South Korea, and anything, as you, said, as you indicated, that approaches their shores, but isn't within their international waters, is it within their national airspace? They tend to see themselves as uh, basically in charge and are prepared to respond. Uh, they didn't shoot the aircraft down, but but for the reaction of the Canadian pilots and changing course, you could have had a tragedy, which would have been an international incident of the first magnitude. What does Canada do here? I mean, obviously, uh, the Prime Minister was was saying that they'll condemn this, but quickly the Chinese dismissed this out of hand, at least in state media, uh, and according to the mouth, you know, those doing the talking for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China, there were there was no contrition for this, not even an admission that perhaps this was dangerous. This was, according to them, everything was just fine. They're not going to admit they're wrong in any aspect. That they that is they basically just repeat the same lines. Um, Canada's at fault, we are not. However, it's possible uh, that when I think back to 2001 when they lost their own aircraft in a collision and the American plane was forced to land on Hainan Island where it was taken apart and examined, the Chinese never accepted any blame for that. However, in my opinion, there was a period afterwards where they were somewhat more cautious. I think under Xi Jinping, things are slightly less cautious again, but we'll see. It may well be that on careful examination, Chinese considering this is a UN mission, that it may not be that wise to to exert quite that level of surveillance and harassment, a danger, putting in danger their own aircraft and those of Canada, and the aircraft of Canada, the Aurora patrol plane. So we will may see. They're never going to admit they were wrong, but I'd be interested to see if perhaps they call back their aircraft from being quite as aggressive. But don't expect an apology and don't expect a fundamental change. They just might be 
perhaps, and I would hope, a little more careful. It's probably important to note, too, that the Australians have a new leader. And I gather the Chinese always like to welcome a new leader, uh, Australian leader specifically, uh, with a little saber rattling just to make sure that uh, they're aware of of what China's stance is on on Australia, at least doing what it wants to do in the South China Sea. Fair point. But that, again, I'd argue is probably an error because the Labour government traditionally had a softer policy towards China um, by forcing the issue. Uh, with a military action against an Australian aircraft, they may, in effect, force the new government to take a harder line than they might otherwise have taken. Uh, I'd argue let a wiser course might have been, let's see if we can somehow improve that relationship. Our own relationship with China is actually a little bit better. It's hard to imagine because ours is very, very bad. Australians are in a worse position. And I I suspect that these sorts of of actions, which the new Prime Minister of Australia uh, called an act of aggression against Australia, uh, may be hardening the view of the new government precisely at a time when the Chinese ought to be uh, courting them in some fashion. I'm speaking with Gordon Holden. He's a director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. We're talking about some incidents recently involving both Canadian, a Canadian Aurora aircraft uh, doing UN work surveilling uh, North Korea over sanctions uh, in the East China Sea and an Australian aircraft in the South China Sea. And just what exactly, what message China has been sending with these incidents. Uh, coming up, I'm glad you, we talked about Australia because I, I find this whole uh, South Pacific Solomon Islands uh, trip that was made recently uh, by a top uh, Chinese official and this big security pact they've signed with China, the Solomon Islands, which is only a few thousand kilometers off the shores of Australia. Just what exactly is China up to? We'll talk about that after this. We're speaking with Gordon Holden this half hour. He's the Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. He's also a professor of political science and an adjunct professor at the Alberta School of Business at the U of A. Um, this was a really interesting thing. The Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, uh, was in the South Pacific recently on the Solomon Islands. They've signed a big security pact. I think he was in Fiji as well. Um, the Chinese clearly have a strategy to the South Pacific. This goes far beyond China's shores, obviously, when it comes to them looking to uh, expand their uh, their reach within that territory. Absolutely. They um... Chinese have global ambitions. They have the world's largest Navy. I think the U.S. Navy is still more capable, but the Chinese Navy is increasing its strength on a regular basis. Um, And they're looking beyond that first island chain of of the uh, Taiwan and Philippines, beyond that into South Pacific. They already have a lot of interest there in terms of mining, fisheries, etc., but also political and strategic view. And, And Solomon Islands are relatively close to Australia. The distances in the Pacific are vast. It's some 3,000 kilometers away, but the Australians in particular and the Americans have memories of Guadalcanal back in in 1942-43 when the Japanese and Americans tussled over uh, parts of the Philippines, particularly of the Solomons, particularly Guadalcanal, in tremendous struggles. And if you look at a map of the Pacific, Solomons are very close to Australia and lie right aside the shipping routes and and supply routes between America and Australia. So it makes both the Americans, but especially the Australians, very nervous. You know, before the war in Ukraine erupted, uh, one would often hear people talk about just how volatile that region is going to become over the next little while, that really that would be the flashpoint of something uh, of something very serious in the decades to come. I know we've been, you know, attention's been very much paid uh, to Russia and Ukraine right now, but that feels like where the real, the battle is going to lie going forward. Fair enough. If you look at the Pentagon documents, even today, um, Russia, Ukraine are seen as an extraordinarily important struggle, but Washington is not, the Pentagon in particular, has not taken its eye off China, which they view as the principal threat to U.S. interests in the world. Um, it's still a region of relative peace, that is, South Pacific Sea and Asia, but it is seen as um, absolutely crucial to U.S. power in this 21st century much more significant in the long run in their view, that is, American views, American eyes, than, than Russia. 
What have you made so far? I mean, we spoke about this uh, a while back, but what have you made now that we're 100 days plus into this war in Ukraine? Uh, what have you made so far about how China's handling this diplomatically? It seems to still be tacitly supporting uh, the Kremlin uh, without coming out too publicly. But what do you think is going on behind the scenes? Well, I think that China is actually not over the moon or that delighted by the Ukraine conflict. I think they knew something was coming. I didn't think they thought that Putin would be as ambitious as he was. And China, in my view, is still in a period of growing its strength. It's not ready for a huge conflict as yet. They are immensely trade dependent, um, far more so than the United States. And they want a period of economic stability um, to maintain and to build their support for the Chinese people. People in China are generally not keen believers in Marxism. They're keen believers in the government. Please deliver for us a high standard of living. So they have to look at that very carefully. And a a broad war, in my view, is not in the Chinese interest at this time. So I think they're very nervous about that. They have helped Russia in terms of uh, buying their energy, selling them some goods. But a lot of Chinese companies, even Huawei, are very nervous about being active in Russia right now for fear of broad sanctions from the West. Yeah, it's it's certainly been interesting to watch happen because you'd get the you get the impression that that China could play a bit of a mediator role here if it so chose, um, but hasn't. I, I'm wondering why that might be. There's no sign of it as yet, and I think the situation may not be ripe as yet. China, ironically, is very strong in favor of territorial integrity, non-interference. So, by Chinese traditional foreign policy, they ought to be aghast at the Russian actions. But they do know also that Russia is an absolutely key state for them that helps prevent, in their eyes, in their eyes, I emphasize, China being um, surrounded or encircled by the West. So they're not, and they also have huge economic stake in, in Russia. So I think that their, their, their economic interests, their strategic interests, push them to be a supporter of, of Moscow in this campaign. But they have wisely, I think, drawn back from supplying military gear or even becoming directly involved. You're not seeing Chinese weapon systems pouring into Ukraine, and I don't think you're likely to see that. They are looking to Chinese interests above all. I imagine. And and Ukraine's a long way from China, but Russia certainly isn't. They share a very long border. Um, You mentioned Huawei, and we haven't talked about this yet, but we haven't seen a whole lot of pushback from China about uh, Canada's decision to, to block Huawei from our from everything, just about, certainly from 5G. But uh, we haven't seen a lot of uh, blowback from China on that one yet. And I was a bit surprised by that. I thought they'd be a little more pointed. They haven't. And it, and you can speculate as the reasons for that. It could well be that they considered it um, a done deal. That China, had, the shoe hadn't dropped, but uh, China knew that that was likely what Canada was going to do. I mean, the telecoms country companies in Canada had mostly move forward with other equipment from Nokia, from Samsung, um, and, and uh, had um, Ericsson, etc. They, in effect, had couldn't wait any longer. They'd gone ahead. They saw the writing on the wall. So maybe the China also decided, well, this is one we're going to lose. I do believe that they were chuffed at the fact that this came one day after their decision to lift the embargo on two major Canadian companies that sell canola into China. So the fact that it came right after that had to be an irritant to them. Um, but I think they have a lot of issues. And again, the Chinese government, we say the Chinese. Chinese government is, even with Xi Jinping, is complex. The PLA, relatively hard line, particularly when it comes to question of sovereignty, such as in harassing Canadian aircraft. But the question of, of um, Huawei, canola, etc., these are partly economic decisions that are taken by different ministries. And you cannot always assume, be dangerous to assume, that every part of the Chinese government operates in precisely the same manner. I also wondered what would be their reaction. But I think so far, and unlike in the case of Australia to date, uh, I think after the release of Meng Wanzhou, you're seeing a Chinese government that wants to improve relations with Canada. But on the Canadian side in particular, the trust is largely gone. The public is fairly hostile, if not hostile. Uh, so we can't expect an early improvement. But it's an interesting question you pose. Gordon Holden, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. Always interesting to chat about uh, what's going on in uh, in China these days. 
Thank you, Ben. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. I honestly didn't know that the Oscar-winning author Matthew McConaughey, or actor rather, Matthew McConaughey, was from Uvalde, Texas. He was at the White House today to talk about gun control. He's someone who he self-admittedly grew up uh, learning the power, uh, to revere the power and capacity of the gun, but he's been horrified uh, by the murder of 19 school kids and two teachers in his hometown. Uh, He met with the president today, with President Biden. They talked a bit about gun control. Here's what he had to say uh, after that meeting. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. And we need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle to 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. These are reasonable, practical, tactical regulations to our nation, states, communities, schools, and homes. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for a civil society and and the Second Amendment. Matthew McConaughey there. As the debate over stricter gun control laws go on, the Supreme Court is about to issue its most significant Second Amendment ruling in more than a decade. With more on that, joining me now is Joseph Bloker. He's a law professor at Duke University and co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I guess it's not unusual, but I guess we do pay more attention when there's been a series of very high profile and very tragic incidents. Uh, we're seeing more mass shootings again over the past weekend. Uh, is there any chance this time that this may prompt lawmakers to do something? Well, you know, we, we, we've seen the rug pulled out before, um, so it could happen again. But it does seem that we are closer to major federal legislation on guns than we have been since the aftermath, aftermath of the uh, Sandy Hook massacre uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, back then, the major push was for uh, expansion of the background check program. Um, came pretty close in the Senate, but never made it to a vote. Um, now there are a few different proposals advancing in Congress, um, some of which might see the light of day. One thing we saw last time and we also saw in the aftermath of the Parkland massacre five years ago is um, uh, our initiatives at the state level. And I think we might see more of that as well. It's not just the federal government. In fact, most gun regulation in the United States is done at the state and local level. And we're seeing some developments there, too. So what are some of the areas where lawmakers are pursuing uh, different legislation that we could see? What sort of what sort of measures might be put into place or at least agreed upon? Uh, There are a lot of things floating out there. I'd say that the two most prominent, maybe most promising are, again, expansion of background checks. Um, Currently under U.S. federal law, only licensed firearms dealers have to perform a background check on a person they're transferring a gun to, to make sure that that person doesn't have a disqualifying felony or disqualifying mental illness. And so if a person is not a licensed dealer, they don't have to do a background check and the proposal would expand the number of people who have to actually perform the checks overwhelmingly popular with the American people. Three quarters, 90% of American people support this, of of, of people in the United States support this. So uh, lots of political support for that. Um, Another prominent proposal, um, which has gained a lot of traction at the state level, uh, is the adoption of what are called red flag laws or extreme risk orders or extreme risk protection orders. And what those do is allow guns to be temporarily taken away from a person who a judge has determined present an immediate risk of harm to themselves or others. So a person who's exhibiting suicidal ideation or threats, uh, something like that. They become very popular at the state level. Some push now for either adoption of a federal law or at least federal support for states um, to do uh, to, to adopt these laws further. And some proposals too to raise the age uh, of for buying certain kinds of guns or again to restrict certain classes of weapons like what are often called assault weapons or high capacity magazines. So it's really a, sort of a suite of proposals moving uh, moving forward. And I think that this coming week, we'll get a little more clarity about which of the ones people are prioritizing. I would imagine, given the circumstances in both Buffalo recently and in Uvalde, that, that all those elements come into play in both those uh, horrific cases. 
I think that's exactly right. And really, it, sometimes people talk about the gun, uh, the gun debate in the United States as if it's kind of an either or, you know, either for gun regulation or you're not. Um, and I always try to resist that question or resist that framing, because really, when we're talking about gun regulation, there's any number of different kinds of interventions that could make a difference. Um, and I think to ask, you know, would this law have stopped this shooting is usually the wrong question. Um, you know, usually it's the question you should be asking is, could this law save some lives? Um, and background checks, to take an example, probably about three million people have been denied guns as a result of failed background checks since the Brady Act went into effect at the federal level in 1994. We don't know how many of those people would have gone on to commit crimes with those weapons, but we do know that the majority of them who were denied their guns were denied because they were either a disqualified felon or a fugitive from justice or a person suffering from mental illness or a person who committed a crime of domestic violence, right? That's a lot of potentially risky people who could not get guns. It's probably a lot of lives saved. So it's going to be, I think, a combination of of all these things. And it's usually, I think, uh, puts an unfair burden really uh, on the law to say, oh, could you have prevented this crime or the other crime? You know, crimes, crimes still happen. And we don't, we don't, we don't deregulate assault because people still commit assault. We don't deregulate murder because people still commit murder. And actually, you know, in these most recent mass shootings, it's notable, um, you know, the shooter waited until his 18th birthday until it was legal to buy the weapon that he went out to buy. I mean, perversely, he was following the law. I guess we never we never do know what crimes haven't been committed uh, due to laws already in place. You've said in the past the greatest obstacle to gun regulations in the U.S. is political, not judicial. Uh, certainly as Canadians, it's always something that we look at. Um, do you feel like the momentum has shifted a little bit this time? Is there sort of and we know it's popular publicly. Uh, do you feel there is sort of some shift in terms of, of, of politicians in the U.S. because of these incidents of late? I think, we're seeing, I think we're seeing sort of like different shifts at different levels. So what I think what we'll probably see, which is what we've already seen in the last five years, is a continuing divergence at the state level. Some states like New York and California, uh, big states, uh, will continue to regulate guns perhaps more stringently, at least as stringently as politics and courts will allow, whereas some other states, including Texas, also a big state, will probably further deregulate. Um, uh, maybe they'll adopt red flag laws. There, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, sort of, again, it's a suite of possible proposals here. Uh, but what we have seen at the state level is continuing divergence. What's really notable about the current moment is just how much pressure there seems to be in Washington. Um, you know, the last major federal gun law that was passed was passed in 2005. Uh, it's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. And what it does is give a special sort of immunity to tort lawsuits to the gun industry, the gun manufacturers and sellers. That's the last form of quote unquote gun regulation that we've engaged with. Um, even under during, you know, during, during President Obama's presidency, there were no major federal gun legislation. Uh, that was no uh, major federal gun legislation past tightening restrictions. So the fact that we're even talking about and having hearings about doing this at the, at the national level, I think is, is what's notable about the current moment. I, I mean, it, it, it uh, I guess there must be from people outside of America, there must be confusion over how the second amendment is interpreted uh, when it comes to these fights, because it's always held up uh, by lawmakers as, as sort of as the beacon. Uh, but what, what is it? What are, what are the common misconceptions about the second amendment amendment that you see from people in other countries like the, the Brits or us? Or... Well, I would say it's like, if there's misconceptions in the United States too, widespread. Right. Um, and one is exactly the one you described, which is that, you know, that there, there's sort of a, I think a, a fear among gun violence prevention advocates, that is people who want to further regulate guns. There's a fear that the second amendment is some kind of, you know, insuperable obstacle. This is like, you know, the, the thing that's holding us back from having further gun regulation. When the fact is that, you know, the, it's not that courts are striking down gun regulation under the second amendment. So we're just not passing gun regulation in the first place. Um, even in the last 13 years, which have seen a real resurgence in uh, Second Amendment law, thanks to a major Supreme Court case, um, uh, there, there really hasn't been a lot of action in the courts in terms of striking down gun laws. It's just that they don't get passed. And likewise, I think, um, you know, gun rights advocates or those who oppose gun regulation are too quick to claim that the Second Amendment is some kind of invincible champion and that the right to keep and bear arms is immune to regulation. That's just not how constitutional rights work. Even in the United States with a sort of thoroughly infused rights culture, uh, the Supreme Court was very clear in its major decision in the Heller case in 2008 that the Second Amendment right, like all rights, subject to various forms of regulation. 
I'm speaking with Joseph Bloker. He's a law professor at Duke University in North Carolina, co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. We're talking about a push, certainly in Washington federally, uh, for gun laws uh, in the U.S. at the state level as well. A divergence, of course, between states that may loosen restrictions versus states that may look to toughen them following a spate of high profile uh, and horrific mass shootings in the U.S. Coming up a bit more about a Supreme Court case that we're getting ready to hear a decision on uh, that could have a big impact, perhaps one of the most uh, Syria or most important uh, gun control decisions in a long time. We'll find out more about that after this. Speaking with Joseph Bloker, he's a law professor at Duke University in North Carolina and co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. We've been talking about uh, the aftermath of both Uvalde and Buffalo mass shootings, as well as a spate of mass shootings over this past weekend as well in the U.S. again. Uh, and also just the reaction from lawmakers, uh, Professor Bloker saying that there is more pressure, at least more movement we're seeing, more momentum in Washington to pass some sort of gun uh, legislation. Uh, you did mention, of course, the you know the courts versus, versus politics. Uh, the Supreme Court is getting ready to deliver a very important uh, decision on gun control. What is it? it? It's based in New York State. Yeah, this is a, this is the case coming out of New York State. The official title is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, we don't know exactly when it's going to be handed down. The court doesn't say ahead of time when uh, when its decisions will come down, but we do know it will be announcing some decisions on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. So we could be getting a decision from the court really soon. The challenge focuses on a New York law which um, r- regulates the concealed carrying of handguns in public. If you want to carry a handgun in public in New York, you're not allowed to do it openly, which means you have to do it concealed. And in order to do it concealed, you have to get a permit. And in order to get a permit, you have to convince a licensing official that you have good cause. Uh, What that means is that you have some kind of elevated need for self-defense above and beyond the average person. Uh, And the petitioners in this case argue that violates their right to keep and bear arms, that um, the the Supreme Court has already held there's a fundamental constitutional right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. But the amendment says keep and bear. And that means it has to extend outside the home as well. And this restriction is simply uh, uh, is to uh, violates that 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 part of the right. Um, I think uh, that for those of us who follow the oral argument and have followed the case closely, I think um, it's a fair bet that this law, at least in its current iteration, is going to be struck down. That is that the Supreme Court is going to find that it does violate the Second Amendment. And the big question that we're all kind of wondering about is what the basis for that holding will be and really how, how broadly it will reach. In this case, this could mean states that have passed laws, and I gather there are several others who have passed laws restricting who can carry a concealed weapon, that those would would automatically be in peril as well. I think that's exactly right. I mean, these are what we call public carry laws, and they really are. This is just about, you know, what what are the restrictions for if you want to carry your gun in public? If you want to have it in home, it's a totally different, totally different story. But Right now, those laws fall into basically three major categories. There are the states that are called May issue states. New York is one of these, where if you want to carry a gun in public, you have to convince a licensing official who's got some kind of discretion, essentially, to give you the permit, you know, that you've got good cause or proper cause. And the states have kind of different statutes, uh, statutory definitions here. But that includes some pretty big states. It's not just New York, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, Delaware, Connecticut, Washington, D.C. covers about a quarter of the American population lives in states that have these kinds of laws. Then there are what are called shall issue laws. Uh, these, there's about 20 states that have these. Uh, in shall issue states, there's no discretionary decision making by the licensing official. You just check enough, check off the boxes correctly, like you've done a training course or whatever the restrictions are, then you automatically get your permit. And then the most recent uh, sort of expansion we've seen is in the category of what are called permitless carry states, sort of aptly named. Uh, in those states, you need no permit. Uh, once you've got your gun, you can carry it in public with no further uh, training or any other kinds of requirements. Um, that's a relatively recent development. Uh, about 30 years ago, only one state, Vermont, was permitless carry. Uh, now, uh, I think it's 21 or 22 are permitless carry. So big expansion in that category. The irony there, of course, being I'm being from from Eastern Canada, I spent quite a bit of time in Vermont, and you rarely did you see people carrying guns around, at least on the streets of, say, you know, Burlington. Um, you know, when you, when one looks at the stats, and you know, in 2020, I think it was 45,000 Americans died of gun-related wounds. Half of those, of course, were uh, were suicides. But one, it's hard to imagine why allowing more people to carry concealed weapons would be a good idea. It's really interesting. And, and, you know, the, the gun death number that you mentioned there, 45,000, that's, that's, that's an all-time high uh, for, for recent years. Um, and the growth has really been in gun homicides. The gun suicides still account for 
depending on the year, about two thirds of gun deaths. But the gap is closed. The last two years have seen an enormous um, uh, uh, growth in, in gun homicides. And those, I should say, are especially concentrated in um, minority communities. Um, uh, uh, young black men ages 15 to 34 account for about 2% of the U.S. population, about 38% of our gun homicide deaths. So this is not a, these are not costs that are being evenly distributed uh, across the population. Now, as far as the policy question of like, well, how is more guns in public going to help with anything? Um, you know, there are empirical studies on both sides of this. Um, gun rights advocates will tell you, um, you know, they'll invoke the famous uh, more guns, less crime thesis that, you know, if there are more guns in public, people will be able to better to defend themselves. Criminals will be deterred. They're not going to attack a crowd, not knowing who's concealed. Others will argue in response, you know, you're very, very unlikely ever to use your gun successfully in self-defense. In fact, you're much more likely to have it taken from you uh, and used either against you or against someone else or to be used accidentally, um, uh, you know, against somebody who actually didn't present a threat. And I just say there's dueling studies on that. From a, from a constitutional perspective, I think the, our, the question is, well, well, who gets to decide when you have that kind of political debate or policy um, uh, debate? And the broader the Supreme Court makes its holding in this New York case, the less room there will be for politically accountable branches to make those kinds of decisions. That is, the court's going to take some of those policy arguments off the table, and that's what that'll constrict uh, the political space. So you're really looking to see what the justices, if in fact they do lean uh, towards striking down the New York law in, in, in either in part or in whole, you're really looking to see what kind of language they use. Because I gather the, one of the reasons for the court challenge was the language in the initial law was quite broad as well. Um, the justices are considering adopting a new, an entirely new framework for evaluating the constitutionality of gun laws. Uh, under this new framework, uh, laws constitutionality would be evaluated solely based on text history and tradition. Um, I filed a brief in this New York case, <laughs> as just in the interest of full disclosure, arguing this would be a very bad idea, uh, because although there is ample historical evidence for gun regulation in the United States, as is elsewhere, it just doesn't lend itself to very good rulemaking. Um, that is, you know, we currently have a law that prohibits you having a loaded gun in the cabin of an airplane. Um, but if you look back to 1791, you unsurprisingly will find no such law. <laughs> Joseph Wilker, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much, Ben. It's always surprising when you live in an area that experiences temperatures they've never seen before, just what happens. Um, if you live somewhere warm, if you've spent time living in, in a tropical area or so on, you know what 40 degrees feels like. But in British Columbia, most of it, not all of it, but certainly the parts where most people live, it's a pretty temperate place. So when temperatures climbed last June, late June, right up into like sweltering, sweltering areas, um, the reaction here was was odd. We're learning more about just how deadly, though, that sweltering heat was that hit British Columbia for that one week between June 25th and July the 1st last summer. Um, I don't use the word lightly. It was unprecedented. Uh, daytime highs shattered records. Nighttime lows really weren't lows by BC standards, certainly not on the coastal areas, um, hitting its peak June 28th, 29th. Well, a review by the BC Coroner Service released today found that 619 people died. Uh, during the so-called heat dome. And yet in the days leading up to the heat wave, up until the last day, June 24th, many, including the media, were calling attention to the fact that this was about to happen. Here's an Environment Canada meteorologist speaking to Global News on June the 24th, just as that heat wave was moving in. A big ridge is already starting to build now. It's going to get just get so strong and this is a pattern that we only really see in July and early August, but we're seeing it in June. And we're even speaking of all-time temperatures, so July and August inclusive, uh, falling for some locations in BC as well. It's unprecedented. So that was from June 24th, uh, 2021. We now know what happened next. The coroner service is also making 14 recommendations into better preventing similar deaths in the future. They range from requiring cooling features in new buildings to a coordinated heat alert system to save lives in cases of extreme heat. Well, joining me now is Dr. Jatinder Baidwan. He's the chief medical officer for the BC's coroner service, for BC's coroner service. And uh, he's been speaking about this report today. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Baidwan. My pleasure. Thank you. As we heard from uh, in that report, I mean, many knew this was coming. 
Um, but like in so many weather events, uh, it seemed that a bunch of things went wrong. Uh, and you've spoken about them today already, that warnings weren't heated, essentially. Uh, how, did, how, did that, uh, how did that shape up finally? Who was not heeding these warnings? You know, I think, I think um, very few people actually heeded the warnings. You're quite right. There were some climatologists talking about this as being a phenomenon that was around the corner. But it, but it wasn't being sort of widely discussed in the media, and it certainly wasn't sort of something that was being alerted you know, in a formal fashion to public agencies or, or the public in general, like a tsunami that would be expected would be, or, or if, if, God forbid, an earthquake was expected, that would be. So not, nothing like that was happening. And uh, because it wasn't formal, I don't think people took it seriously. And I think, honestly, like I've been saying today, I actually remember that day, and, and a lot of people were really excited about the heat. They wanted to go and you know, go to parks, they wanted to go for a hike, or they wanted to go and sort of sit by the water somewhere. And they weren't thinking of it as something that was going to be um, a killer, essentially, for, for many of the neighbours. No, I mean, I, I agree. I certainly at the time, one would, if you contrast it to, say, the coverage we get here of an impending snowstorm, for instance, it was far less serious. It was right. Certainly the tone was a lot less serious. Uh, you've looked into this now. Just how deadly was it? And, and why was it so deadly? Well, I think, I think you know, we know that the, the toll they took, we know that it took 619 of our, of our population away from us. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know... Um, we know that our numbers, people often compare them to places like Oregon and Washington, and you know, they say, well, you know, why did people not die there of heat exposure? What I can tell you about that is that we actually alerted people, you know, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, we alerted doctors in the province to the fact that anyone that died from heat, it wasn't a natural death. We actually made that very clear so that people reported it to us because I remember the conversation well with, with um, my boss, Chief Coroner, on the day when we when when all this was you know handing out, and we sort of had that conversation. I said, "Look, you know, we've got to tell people that this, these are not natural deaths because I knew that a lot of the people that succumbed would actually have natural disease processes happening in their bodies. They would have chronic disease, and it would be easy to say, well, actually, someone died of the renal failure that they had or congestive heart failure.' But actually, but for the fact that the heat came along, they probably wouldn't have died that day. So I, I you know, we wanted to collect the data, the statistics, and be able to investigate this further." So I think we've done that. We've we've got a lot of um, information. You've heard a lot of it, you know, and some of it's quite astounding. I mean, 98% of the deaths occurred indoors. You know, the the fact that um, compared to the BT population, heat-related deaths were higher among persons on on some of these uh, chronic disease registries, and, and not just the physical ones, but really things like schizophrenia, substance use disorder, epilepsy, you know, depression, and 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 anxiety. All of those things made it much more likely that you were going to succumb. You know, the things that we know about, like, you know, if you lived in a, a materially or a socially depri- um, deprived neighborhood, you were far more likely to succumb. So th- th- there was tons of stuff that was coming at us. And we only know this now. We, we, we've got this valuable data because we actually look for it. I mean, some of the numbers that struck me too, 56% of people lived alone. That's not surprising. Uh, a vast majority right. of the people who died were elderly. I mean, you think about how horrific it would be to try to be living all by yourself during a pandemic in a, in a place with no cooling. I gather most people didn't have air conditioning. A very small percentage of people didn't have air conditioning. I mean, you know, the BC is not really a place built for that. I mean, coastal BC is not really built for that kind of heat in so many ways. Um, when, you, when you looked at who was who was vulnerable, I know there was a stat too that came out today about just how many people had, had you know, there were instances of people waiting for care. It really showed just how fragile the whole system was. We have the opioid crisis straining the healthcare system. I mean, there was a lot of things going on that led to some of the problems we saw that week. There were, you know, it's a confluence of issues that sort of kind of came together and, and, and that you're absolutely right about that. Having said that, though, you know, it's what you said at the beginning. It's the fact that we're just not expecting these temperatures. We don't know how to deal with them. And, uh, you know, certainly last year we didn't. You know, we there were silly things like we didn't know whether to shut the, the curtains or draw the curtains or leave them open, open the windows or close the windows. What's the best thing to do when, there's, when it's so hot outside? And people got confused. You know, there were there were instances of, you know, people that had died um, that had air conditioning units, but sadly the air conditioning units weren't properly turned on. So they were actually blowing warm air into the room. And so there were all sorts of horrible instances that we picked up in our investigations. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things I will say, though, I mean, 
you know, our third recommendation that we made really was all about the future and how we really need to future-proof our new buildings that we're going to make. We need to make sure that they are as good at um, deflecting the, 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 uh, the heat as they are at keeping the heat in um, in the winter when it's needed. Um, you know, we, we need to make sure that we have rebate programs that are offered to individuals and, and to organizations so that they can retrofit um, a lot of the buildings that they operate at the moment and make sure that these kind of things are done now. Um, but this all, it will all take time. So, you know, our, our second uh, recommendation is really about sort of, you know, what we can do in the immediate future. And that is really work with local communities and identify who the vulnerable people are and ensure the next time this happens, God forbid, if it happens in two or three months' time, that we can actually sort of either get those folks that are vulnerable into a cooling centre or actually get equipment to them that can help them cool. And either way, you know, that the end product is that we, we, we won't see them suffer like the way they did last year. I mean, there certainly was uh, a lag between, you know, the, the the response by public officials certainly left to be desired as well. Um, that's something you pointed out as well in, in the report, that really, if it was going to be as dangerous as we thought it might be, or at least those who'd seen heat waves in other parts of the world create similar tragedies, um, that it was imperative that someone sound the alarm in a much more uh, serious way than was done uh, last late June. You're quite right. I mean, our first recommendation is all about that. When the panel came together, the biggest recommendation, that you know, the first and most important recommendation was there's got to be an alert system. We have to have the ability to tell people very seriously that something sinister is about to happen unless they take action. And, you know, we did not have that last year. And, you know, the, the public agencies are also run by humans. And to err is human, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, and, and uh, you know, to forgive sublime, I think, is the way that, that saying ends. But, it, but at the end of the day, the people that were operating the public agencies didn't know that this was about to happen either. They didn't stand up the right number of staff. They didn't put the right resource allocation to this. You know, none of that happened. And it didn't happen because we didn't have an alert system. But now, thankfully, we will. I'm speaking with Dr. Jatinder Baidwan. He's the Chief Medical Officer for BC's Coroner Service. We're talking about a report uh, the Coroner Service released today on the number of deaths uh, during that uh, huge heat wave, the heat dome, as it's well known, that hit BC last summer between June 25th and July the 1st. Uh, more than 600 people died, many of them elderly, um, many of them on their own, uh, many with pre-existing medical conditions. Uh, but certainly what it did able us to do is, is identify, I think, who it is that is vulnerable in these situations, and that will help. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about the recommendations. Uh, Dr. Badewan's already mentioned several of them, but just how we put them into practice. How do you protect the vulnerable in those sorts of uh, situations? We'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Jatinder Badewan. He's the Chief Medical Officer for the BC's Coroner Service. We're talking about a report released today by the service uh, documenting uh, the deaths due to last year's heat wave, heat dome that hit British Columbia, uh, unprecedentedly high temperatures. We now know a lot more about who was vulnerable, who was most vulnerable over that time, and and why they, and in many ways, it was the elderly and people who lived alone, people with pre-existing medical conditions, uh, you know, things that you may have been able to predict. But one of the challenges here, I guess, Dr. Badwan, is in circumstances such as these, these are the people who are left unprotected at the best of times. What about at the worst of times? It's it's a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you've hit the nail on the head again. I mean, one of the things that we saw was that the, um, the chronic disease registries that folks came from that were more likely to succumb, including the mental health ones. And we know for sure that, you know, we know that when someone has a mental health chronic illness, there are times in their life when they function very highly, and there are times in their life when they don't. And if that time happened to coincide with a heat dome, then they weren't able to make good decisions. And then if you veneer on top of that, the fact that, uh, you know, um, when, when, you, when any of us, even that, when we're functioning very highly in a cognitive sense, when we're dehydrated, when we're succumbing from, to heat, you know, our, our cognitive function does decline. And then if you sort of add the two things together, you're, you end up in a disaster situation where people don't, do not make good decisions around their own safety. And, and I think that's what led to some of these folks, um, you know, not making it through this. And we, we can't really see that happening again. We've got to make sure that we, we, we apply the knowledge that we're gaining. Um, and there were, some, there were some sort of, you know, areas of positive deviance. Um, there were some areas where um, essentially you know, they were materially deprived, socially deprived neighbourhoods. But because there was such a close-knit neighbourhood, 
because people looked after one another, they, they actually did a really good job of looking after one another through the heat waves. And, uh, and they didn't succumb any more than the general population. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from this, sort of these, these areas that we've identified too. Yeah, I thought that was certainly one of the most interesting things that came up during uh, your press conference today, Dr. Badwan, was this idea that there were areas where you might have expected things to have been worse than they weren't and how much we could learn from what worked there. Uh, it's a fascinating concept. You also mentioned just protocols and uh, making sure that that when there is this sort of heat wave approaching or any weather, potentially deadly weather event for that matter, that there are plans in place that are then enacted at every level because i think that's something else we didn't see last year so last summer was sort of a a universe a, a blanket response to this you know again you're right there needs to be a there needs to be a personal ownership of some of this so even individuals have got to have plans and they've got to make sure that they've got plans that they can action when when the heat dome comes along the next time around and then you expand that and you say well you know you've got to look after your neighbors and your community too so you've got to be able to sort of go and knock on people's doors and say, are you okay? Can I help you in some way? You know, we, we don't generally tend to do that as a population. We tend to, you know, we tend to sort of um, really honor people's privacy and we do not want to sort of encroach on, on them in any way. And so, so I think that's got to disappear when, when there's a time like a heat wave happening. And then you sort of, you know, bring it up a notch and then you've got the local sort of level communities, the local authorities, um, you know, all of that, they've got their responsibilities and it's got to work seamlessly. You've got to have a plan that sort of cascades up and down all the way from the province, all the way down to an individual. And everyone knows what they're responsible for and where they can get help and where they can sort of, you know, latch on to help if they need it. Um, it's going to be incredibly complex, but it's, it, it is absolutely doable. We did similar things during COVID. You know, we, we made a huge difference to the mortality and the morbidity that we could have seen in British Columbia by following what people like Dr. Henry said. You know, we, we made a huge difference, but it meant that we had to have concerted action that was focused. We've also had another emergency, and I've got to say this, you know, where we haven't made a huge difference because most of us don't get behind the, the whole drug death scene that's happening in BC. Our numbers are not decreasing, and that's, that's exactly the, the, the example that we mustn't follow. So, so we've got to we've got to sort of um, you know we know how we can do things, and we also know how not to do things. It's our choice now as a community and a society to make the you know make the right choices. I know in the short term, of course, one of your main recommendations, one that the BC government's already introduced, uh, at least introduced the day yesterday, was this coordinated heat alert response system. I'm looking forward to people, com- the first time they use it and it's not warm or not warm enough and people start complaining about it being used. Uh, but one of the things you really did look at was these long-term mitigation strategies. And we have a few minutes left. Uh, that seemed to be a really important part of this was making sure that we're aware that things are changing. BC is going to become a place, or we believe, where we're going to have to contend with with heat waves of this nature in the future. You said at the beginning of the program, um, you know, we're going to see much more, um, many more swings in temperature, way more than we've seen in the past. And it's those swings when they can, when they happen over two or three days, one after the other, that's what leads to an accumulated effect. And you actually and find people are going to succumb unless we've made a difference to the way that, you know, the, the housing is, you know, the, the way that the, our housing is even oriented, our future housing, you know, does it face the south? Does it, you know, does it sort of reflect heat or does it absorb heat? You know, all of these things have to be worked through. Building codes have got to be changed. All of these things, we, we, we know the science behind it, but we've just got to put it into action. And that's going to take a lot of effort. Well, Dr. Bedwan, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a fascinating report. And uh, certainly, I, I wasn't going to ask you to get out your crystal ball and say if this will never happen again. You've answered that question today by saying it could, but we're better prepared than we used to be. So thank you so much for your time tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.